Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Various dates have been suggested for the beginnings of globalization, but former economist editor Mark Levinson says the nature of globalization changed dramatically in the 1980s with the creation of long-distance value chains. Although that has profoundly shaped the world we live in, Mr. Levinson argues in his latest book, Outside the Box, uh, its rise was neither inevitable nor planned. His book is published by Princeton University Press and brings Mark Levinson to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Good to be with you. Did this grow out of your previous book, the one 14 years ago called The Box, which was about uh, the history of standardized shipping containers? Well, uh, yes, uh, and it has in common, obviously, the, the relationship between container shipping and the modern version of globalization. Uh, but how I got into this book was actually looking at how fouled up long-distance supply chains had become. Uh, I think people may not be aware that it actually uh, takes longer to get your freight delivered today than it did 20 or 30 years ago, and there's a much greater chance of it getting lost en route. Uh, these these uh, long supply chains that many companies built have tended not to work so well. And so it was really from that that I moved toward doing a, a longer history of uh, globalization. Now, in, in uh, 2009, uh, just a few years after that book was published, in the wake of the financial crisis, the world economy shrank for the first time since 1944. And the assumptions about supersized container ships and uh, the use of those containers, those boxes, all changed, didn't they? Yes. Um, in the, to, to take your uh, listeners back a little bit, uh, in, uh, start in 2006, there was just a um, quantum leap in the size of container ships. Um, you know, before 2006, the biggest ships out there carried uh, about the, the amount of cargo that you'd have in 4,500 trucks. Uh, in shipping terms, they call this 9,000 20-foot equivalent units, or TEUs. And then all of a sudden, the, the big ships went to 15. And since then, they've gone to over 20,000 TEUs. In other words, more cargo on one ship than is carried in 10,000 trucks. And they're wider, and and they're bigger? They, yeah, the assumption was that this would be cheaper, right? You build a bigger ship. Um, the cost of operating it isn't really much larger than the cost of operating a smaller ship. So the cost per container goes down, and you're going to have even more trade to carry in these big ships. And what happened was that as these big ships came online, international trade didn't grow as everybody expected. Uh, the uh, trade actually declined following the uh, recession in, in 2008. And then when it picked up again, it picked up very slowly. And so these massive ships were sailing around the oceans half empty. And now aren't you arguing in this new book that globalization is entering a new era in, in which moving stuff will matter much less than moving services, information, and ideas? Part of my argument in this book is that actually globalization went too far in that the companies that decided to build these long supply chains focused on two things. They focused on actually the production cost of making your product in a lower wage country, and they focused on the transport cost. And when you looked at those two things, it seemed to make great sense to move 
a lot of your manufacturing to Asia or to Mexico or to other low-wage places. Now, when you say Asia, you're not talking about Japan, because talking about Japan China. was one of the countries that was affected in a negative yes, way. Yes, I'm talking about China, Southeast Asia, India, uh, just on, on the basis of the cost to make your product and the cost to ship it, it seemed like this was a really good deal. And when they built these supply chains, companies by and large didn't pay much attention to risk. And as it turns out, when you've got a long and complicated value chain with inputs coming from many different places, and then they're shipped here to be assembled and they're shipped somewhere else to be sold, there are a lot of opportunities for things to get fouled up. And when they get fouled up, it can be really expensive to your company. So once companies started looking at globalization on a risk-adjusted basis, if you'd like, some of the decisions they'd made didn't look so smart anymore. And what we've seen really uh, since 2010, roughly, is that a lot of companies have been slowly retreating from the way that they had handled their international production. Uh, it's not really smart to put all your eggs in one basket in a huge factory in some country across the ocean. And so we're seeing changes in the way manufacturers and retailers operate. And we're seeing changes in the decisions about where they manufacture and how they manufacture. And so you point out that, that global, go ahead. So I'm not saying that globalization is dead. What I am saying is that we've been seeing trade grow more slowly than the world economy for a number of years. That's a big reversal. During the 90s and during the aughts, international trade grew twice as fast as the world economy, and in some years much faster. Now trade is lagging the world economy. And we're seeing that what is being traded is shifting. Uh, it doesn't, it's not the manufactured goods that matter so much anymore, and we're starting to see a new version of globalization emerge that has more to do with moving services and ideas around the world. You write, I'm quoting, when a Massachusetts-based manufacturer of industrial abrasives with plants in 27 countries could be owned by a Paris-based corporation that counted Dutch pension funds, British investment trusts, and Middle Eastern governments among its major shareholders, who was to say whether the resulting entity was French, American, or just international? Now, is that a bad thing? Well, it depends. Uh, it's probably not a bad thing in terms of the world economy. But if you're thinking about how do we capture some benefit for a particular place, then it's a really confusing thing, okay? Because we tend to think of American companies, American products, and people in other countries think much the same. And it's pretty hard to figure out sometimes what's an American company or an American product. I had a guest uh, some months back who, who said that globalization began around the year 1000. But the globalization you're writing about has been underway since around the 1830s. How did it differ from the international trade that preceded it? The international trade that uh, preceded the 1830s was uh, different in, in two ways from what, what came after. The first is that this trade was almost entirely in commodity, okay? Yes, we had Portuguese ships filled with pepper uh, that sailed from India to Portugal, okay? And yes, uh, we had cotton carried from the United States to Great Britain. 
Okay, but there was almost no trade uh, across borders in manufacturing goods. Okay, it was it was quite expensive. Uh, so there were not trade in consumer products, uh, except at the very very high end of the market. Sort of stuff mm-hmm. you see when you're visiting castles in Europe and you can see the Chinese porcelain. So trade was in commodities. The other difference is that trade up until the 1830s, 1840s, was done on the basis that we will export this stuff to another country, and once it gets to the other country, we'll try to sell it. That is really very different from planning a supply chain in which we're assuming that a particular good gets to a particular place, to a particular buyer at a particular time for a particular purpose. And there was nothing like that. It took actually the telegraph and the steamship to make trade like that even remotely thinkable. Before that, trade was a matter of you ship it somewhere and hopefully they'll buy it at the other end. So that was around 1830 and things developed as uh, long in the years since. But you write the 25 years or so that began around 1987 was a unique stage. What led to the development of the, the complex international value chains that came along in 19, around 1987? Well, there were three developments that really brought these together. One, which, as you mentioned earlier, I've written about, is the development of container shipping. This made it cheaper and much more reliable to send goods internationally. It made it practical to ship goods that before weren't worth shipping internationally. The second was the development of improved computing so that companies could actually keep track of what was going on in different locations around the world in real time. And the third tied to the second was the drastic fall in the price of telecommunications. To take your listeners back to the early 1980s, uh, if you had a business in New York and you needed to communicate with a supplier in a different country, you sent a telex message. Okay, Mm -hmm. Somebody typed this message in to a clackety machine, and at the other end it printed out on a sheet of paper and was ripped from the roll and run into somebody's office. That's how business communication worked, because phone calls were incredibly expensive. But once the price of telecoms fell, uh, and today, of course, it's close to zero, what with the Internet, and and computers could be linked over the, the phone system, then it really became practical to closely manage a supply chain that stretched all around the world. And it didn't take companies long to figure that out. And tariffs were also reduced. Uh, Tariffs have become a a big issue during the Trump administration. Uh, But all of that led to growth in international trade, cross-border lending, foreign direct investment. Wasn't that a good thing because it raised the living standards of hundreds of millions of people and and offered enormous uh, benefits to, to consumers? Well, trade is in general good for a number of reasons. But it's also bad for certain people, okay? Uh, Trade is good in terms of offering a lot more choice to consumers, no question about it. Uh, A lot of people benefit from working for enterprises that are engaged in trade. But I think as we've seen, uh, there are also a lot of people who can get hurt when all of a sudden their industry or their company is uh, 
badly hurt by imports. And it takes a while to adjust to that. It takes a while to recover from that. And so I think we see that it's it's two-sided. On balance, yes, I think the the, uh, increased uh, globalization, the increase in international trade was good for the world, but that does not mean that there weren't a lot of losers because there certainly were. And uh, huge amounts of money goes across borders. It, sh- it shakes the whole global balance of power. Well, it changed the whole global balance of power. Uh, I think one thing that also happened, and, and I write about this at some length uh, in the book, is that uh, it, a lot of this uh, international trade was actually subsidized in different ways. And, and that's an important point because, you know, when, when you hear economists talking about trade, they're saying, oh, you know, this is the market being efficient. Well, the decisions that were made about where products should be manufactured and how value chains should be laid out weren't based just on market forces. Uh, for example, a, a lot of these container ships were subsidized by uh, shipbuilding countries such as China and Korea, by ship-owning countries such as Germany. Okay. What does that subsidy mean? It means that the cost of transport was actually lower than it would have been in a market, true market mm-hmm. economy. And so probably more things were transported than really would have made sense at market prices. Manufacturers were very much subsidized. Uh, take a look today. Any a significant manufacturing plant that locates almost anywhere gets a government subsidy. Well, you know, economists like to talk about comparative advantage, right? Each country is doing what it's most efficient at. But here we had companies making decisions about where to locate, not because of any comparative advantage, but because somebody gave them money. They gave them a cheap loan. They subsidized their workers. They gave them a building or let them have access to uh, scarce uh, uh, real estate or uh, gave them a trained workforce, especially for their needs or whatever it was. And so a lot of the decisions that were made leading to this vast increase in international trade were not really market-driven decisions. And I think it's important to recognize that. Except for Ford and GM cars, most of the ads I see on TV are for foreign cars. Is that, be, is that a part of this whole process? Well, I'm not sure exactly what a, a foreign car means at this point. Most cars, and in fact, almost all, have components from multiple countries. They have systems that have been designed in multiple countries. And because you buy a Ford, it certainly doesn't mean that every piece of it or even the majority of it was necessarily assembled in the United States or designed in the United States. And the same is perfectly true if you buy a a Toyota or a Volkswagen. All of the companies in this business have international value chain. And it's very hard to figure out exactly where the value was added in making one of these products. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming online at WBAI.org. And you point out that in the 1920s, the Ford Motor Company controlled its supply chain tightly by directly buying everything that it needed to manufacture its vehicles. It owned forests, 
mines, rubber plantations, steel plants, and textile mills to ensure that its production line would run smoothly. But now, a century later, you, you note a single button in the steering system of a BMW goes through nine different manufacturing processes as, uh, in, and in as many different locations. So do, do countries, regions, and companies now produce only what they can make most efficiently and then move the rest on? And is that a bad thing? Well, it's not necessarily what they make most efficiently because, as I mentioned, they may well have been subsidized. The manufacturer may well have been subsidized mm. to put this particular plant in this particular location. So efficiency may have nothing to do with it. One of the problems that arises from this is that if you're the manufacturer of, say, the, the finished product, the final good, you may not even know who all the participants are in your value chain that are four, five, six layers down in the system. And if one of them fouls up, you may not be able to get your goods completed. You may not be able to meet your deadlines. You may not be able to have your products in the stores when you promised them to your customers. And so this is a, a serious problem in supply chain risk that companies were very slow to recognize. Isn't that something that BMW faced in 2005? They were forced to recall thousands of their vehicles because of the contaminated coating, which was made and sold by DuPont to a U.S. auto parts maker named Federal Mogul, which added it to metal sockets that it sold to a third company, Robert Bosch, which then added them to pumps that were fitted to the BMW cars. Uh, but BMW is the one, as you point out, that got all the blame for that. Well, that's right. And, and that blame plays out uh, in terms of lost sales. It also plays out in terms of reputational damage because your customers don't care about the coding. All they know is your name is on the product and you're supposed to make sure that the product does what it's supposed to do and is delivered on time. And, and once they started calculating actually the economic effect of these risks, I think a lot of companies saw that they'd gone too far with these supply chains. Uh, one another example, isn't it? Isn't that, the uh, Boeing 737 airliner another example where it found that uh, it's uh, their defective parts of wings originated with a metal plating firm, at least four links removed from Boeing? Sure. It happened with the Boeing 737. Uh, if you go back a few years, it also happened with the Boeing 787. They, they similarly had problems. They built a supply chain that went into dozens of different countries, and they couldn't get their plane launched because this supplier here actually wasn't delivering what it was supposed to deliver, and this other supplier here had a little problem. And they found out that they had made their value chain just too complicated. We started having to take some of these things back in-house. Apple had suppliers in 49 countries as of last year. Right. Wow. And, and so these things are, are hard to run, and you have to make a choice. The, the way you deal with this, uh, you reduce the risk by having redundancy. Well, what does that mean? Okay. So it means that you might want to make the same product in different locations in case there's a problem at one of those locations. You might want to have suppliers at different locations. 
You might want to use different ship lines to move your goods. You might want to move them through different ports. All of those things are intended to avoid single point failures, if you'd like. So your business doesn't shut down if there happens to be an earthquake at this location. But taking those steps can be expensive. Uh, in the short term, it's much cheaper to put all your eggs in one basket if you're a manufacturer. Uh, that's, that's definitely the way to do business until something goes wrong. And then when something goes wrong, you say, uh, oh, maybe we overdid it here. And I think that's really what happened with a lot of the, uh, the development of value chains. What about the, the, the creations of, of common markets? In 1952, six European countries created a common market in coal and steel that eliminated tariff and other trade obstacles. I think, isn't the EU seen as, as generally a success? Yes, and we've had a lot of trade agreements around the world. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, these have led to uh, decreases in tariffs on many products and, and definitely have um, freed up uh, trade. But, you know, the tariffs have been declining since uh, the aftermath of World War II pretty steadily. And by themselves, the tariff declines really didn't trigger this development of uh, long value chains. That really came with the, the technological developments I mentioned earlier, the, the container ship and uh, computing and, and cheap telecommunication. Now, by 1972, wasn't the United States importing more manufactured goods than it, than it exported for the first time since the 19th century? Uh, so that means that we've had a trade deficit since 1972? Uh, the since um, 1972, uh, yeah, man, most of our imports have been manufactured goods, uh, which uh, has was also a, a shift. But the, the nature of those manufactured goods has changed. Okay, if you think back to the um, sort of discussions that went on in the 70s and 80s, and, and Leonard, I think you and I may be both be old enough to remember those sort of discussions. Uh, I'm remembering discussions even earlier than that. Okay. Last. We talked about something <laughs> called a multinational corporation, right? Mm. And a multinational corporation was a company that was based in a, a rich country like the United States. And it made things here and then sold them in poor countries. Or maybe it made something in a poor country and sold it in a rich country. Mm. But the things that it made were pretty much made in one place. And so this multinational corporation might have had subsidiaries in 50 countries, but those subsidiaries didn't deal with each other much at all. They all dealt with the headquarters. And there wasn't much stuff moving from place to place within this system. Each, each subsidiary was serving a particular country and had a distinct market. All that is gone now. That's not how business uh, operates. Now you've got uh, maybe a value chain that runs through 10 countries and produces a product that's sold in 20 or 30 countries. That's a, a much more common approach now, and it's a very different form of production. But the World Bank estimates that the number of people lifted out of extreme poverty, more than 1 billion people in the past three decades, greatly exceeds the number of people who may have been harmed by the loss of local jobs or, or the lowering of wages. So, isn't that a reasonable trade-off? Well, 
you've got to remember that we're talking about individuals here. And the fact that some other people have gotten, have become better off and you've become worse off doesn't mean that it's a great trade-off that you're worse off. I don't think that we, we really want to say that. And, and so the question is, how do you get these benefits while still uh, or keeping them from being worse off? And that's something that we're not so good at. So was globalization taken too far because of large government subsidies that you mentioned earlier? I think the uh, subsidies and the misjudgment of risks by businesses were really the two factors that led globalization to um, go too far. Yes. In, in some cases, the risk of, uh, of things not being delivered on time? Yes, absolutely. If, if you're a, a retailer, uh, Christmas is your big season in most parts of retailing. You want your goods on the shelf for the Christmas season. And if your goods are um, stuck on a ship somewhere or stuck in a port somewhere because of a strike or a fire or um, a collision with ships or whatever it is, that's not doing you any good. Uh, you are potentially missing out on your big selling season. Uh, you're annoying your customers. You're hurting your reputation. And so there's a real cost to that. And I think many businesses have now seen that. And then there are other factors like disruptions like the, the label dis, labor dispute in, in the Pacific Coast ports in 2002, the, uh, the earthquake in Japan in 2007. Uh, I'm sure that right now, some of the, uh, the extreme weather conditions we are experiencing is having a, a major impact on the future of, of our economy and maybe the world economy. Yes, uh, in the uh, labor dispute on the Pacific Coast, there were actually some retailers that came very close to going under. They couldn't get their goods. They had gotten the best deal for manufacturing those goods. They'd gotten the best deal for shipping those goods. But all of those manufactured goods were being shipped through a single port on the West Coast. And when that port closed down, their goods were out there bobbing in the harbor. Well, it's not very good for business. And this is the type of problem that I think businesses were really slow to recognize. Nobody uh, really had imagined that auto sales and auto production in Germany would be affected by an earthquake and, and tsunami in Japan. Uh, nobody thought about that at all. And, and yet it happened. And you had auto plants in, in Germany and the United States closing down because of something that happened halfway around the world. And then international trade and foreign investment collapsed during the 2007-2009 financial crisis. Um, how, how much have they been able to recover? Uh, international trade uh, collapsed pretty seriously. Uh, and then what happened was it uh, kind of stagnated. Uh, if you look at international trade uh, as a percentage of GDP, uh, 2008 was actually the peak year. This is for the whole world. Okay. Uh, since then, uh, international trade dropped several percentage points. It's come back a bit, but it's still less than it was in 2008. And what that means is that trade is growing less than the world economy. So this doesn't mean that trade is going away by any stretch. And I don't buy the globalization is done story. 
But globalization of trade is no longer the driving force in the economy the way it was uh, in the uh, early part of the century. What about the impact of Brexit? Has that had uh, uh, a major effect? Or for that matter, the election of Donald Trump, both of them in 2016? Um, for Brexit, you're going to have to ask me a year or two from now, okay? Because Brexit actually hasn't quite taken effect yet. Uh, what we see is companies trying to figure out how to manage this. And that turns out to be very hard because it's not exactly clear how Brexit is going to shake out. There's still no agreement between the UK and the European Union about how trade is going to work under Brexit. And so uh, that, that's still an unknown. Uh, I think what we've seen uh, under Trump, uh, again, emphasizes really the risks of these long supply chains. Here we've got governments, the U.S. government and the Chinese government, that have engaged in somewhat of a tit-for-tat trade war. Uh, one of them suddenly makes it more expensive to import this product from another country or bars this product from another country. And we've done that with other countries, too. We've put tariffs on certain products from France or from Canada or whatever. Well, if, if you're a manufacturer or a, a retailer, you've got to think about the possibility of that happening, perhaps more than you did before. And, and again, uh, you have to think about a different way of, of approaching globalization. Maybe you want to have your products supplied from multiple countries, including the United States, rather than just one country, as an example. So I think it, it definitely this, this retraction of, of global value chains didn't start with Trump by any means. But I think uh, Trump has reminded a business of the risks of having these long-distance value chains. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And we are streaming at WBAI.org. They say forget your suspicions, work in sweatshop conditions. Sell some more sneakers and guard these munitions. It's globalization. 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 Before I get back to my conversation with Mark Levinson, I just want to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and, and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. And again, the number is 516 620 3602, 516-620-3602. Our website is give2wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing outside the box how globalization changed from moving stuff to spreading ideas by my guest, 
Mark Levinson. Perhaps you know a, a budding economist who would be thrilled to receive the book. Why not give them a wonderful gift and help support independent radio in New York City at the same time? But no matter what level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step and, and keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give2wbai.org online. If, if Leonard Lopez Lodge has become a regular part of your day, please consider stepping up for someone who's just discovering it with the gift of the of the, an hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope to bring you in, with each installment of this program. And you can do that one more time, 516-620-3602. Go to our website, give2wbai.org, and please help support New York City's only 100% independent radio station. And, and don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. From all of us at the station, thank you. And, and now I'm returning to Mark Levinson, whose latest book is Outside the Box, How Globalization Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas. Uh, now, uh, I'm, uh, how integrated is the global economy? Hasn't NYU professor Pankaj, uh, um, forgive me for, if I mispronounce his name, Gemma, uh, Gemma hasn't he determined that the foreign affiliates of the world's multinational companies account for only about 9% of global output? Yes, but measuring how integrated the world economy is is a, a tough trick uh, because there are a lot of different ways in which globalization can occur and and that is in fact what i think is going on uh, we've seen for example that foreign direct investment isn't so popular anymore foreign direct investment is when a company that's based in one country uh, has control of or buys a property or land or some kind of asset in another country, right? And th this is what people traditionally think of as foreign investment. This has actually been uh, in decline for a dozen years. Why? Well, one reason is that uh, companies have decided by and large that it's not really necessary. If you want to have a presence in another country, uh, you don't actually have to build your own factory or start your own subsidiary or whatever it is. You can sign contracts with people there. Somebody else can make your goods. Somebody else can even market your goods. And so it's not necessary to actually have a direct investment in the way that companies used to have. Uh, there are licensing arrangements, joint ventures, all sorts of ways of doing business that provide alternatives to the uh, foreign direct investments that we're familiar with. We mentioned uh, earthquakes and financial crises. There's also wars, sudden technological shifts, ideological passions, and most recently uh, a pandemic which uh, all interrupt or make cross-border integration more difficult. Is it your sense that COVID-19 will reorient the global economy or uh, strengthen trends that are already underway? Yeah, the trends were already underway. There's no question. I think that COVID-19 has drawn a lot of attention 
to the risks of these supply chains, uh, value chains, that, that uh, uh, we've found that certain products, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, personal protective equipment, were overwhelmingly made in other countries, uh, in some cases China, in some cases elsewhere, and that even in some cases where the product was made elsewhere, the uh, inputs to that product may have come from China or someplace. And, and so obviously the, there's a lot of concern now about the supply chain risk that's involved in pharmaceuticals and in personal protective equipment. That mirrors the discussion that's been going on in a number of other industries for years about the uh, increasing risk in supply chains. And I think is going to lead to more thought on the part of businesses. And it's also leading to uh, some efforts by governments around the world to make sure that they've got parts of these supply chains in their own countries. So what's been the effect of uh, President Trump's uh, negative statements about China, blaming it for the coronavirus and uh, engaging in uh, or threatening anyway a, a tariff war. China is, has been a major trading partner with the United States, and they buy stuff from us also, don't they? Or was it a, an, a, an unequal balance uh, when the president started complaining? China definitely has a large uh, trade surplus with the United States. Um, it's important to note, though, that the trade surplus isn't a very good measure anymore of uh, where things are being made or where value is being made. I think people are pretty familiar with the, the well-known story of uh, the Apple iPhone, right, and how very little of the value in that phone, which we import from China, is actually added in China between the, the profit that goes to Apple and the uh, value that's created by U.S. suppliers and Japanese suppliers and Korean suppliers and German suppliers that goes into the phone, uh, only a few cents on the dollar actually ends up in China. And that's the case in a lot of different industries. So it's very hard to sort out where value is being added, where the jobs are being created, and, and so forth. Uh, the old-fashioned talk about this being a Chinese product or this being a U.S.-made product really isn't very helpful anymore. Uh, to your question, I think what... Wait, wait, and one of the reasons uh, that Apple is happy to do that is because Chinese workers get paid less money. Well, a Apple is happy to do that because Chinese workers get paid less money and because uh, it has it's able to have an enormous factory in China that's run by a different company, by the way, not by Apple, that has great economies of scale. So it's actually cost of assembling each iPhone is low. Uh, and also because it's tempted by the size of the Chinese market. So there are a number of different factors uh, at play there and wages are not the only one by any stretch. But could you find workers in of the United States or Japan or Western Europe in these high-wage countries who really want to go and sit in a factory and uh, screw iPhones together all day. Hmm. You could actually have trouble um, finding thousands of people who are eager to take that job in this country. Although the Canadian government has been strongly committed to globalization, this past June, 
Christia Freeland, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, spoke of the need for an economic model that relied more on local production to, to boost resilience and reduce the risk of shortages of, of critical goods in times of crisis. And Canada seems to be um, handling this crisis a lot better than the United States. I can't really talk about the um, comparative uh, abilities of the governments to handle the crisis. Uh, Christian Freeland's comment is very similar to what you've heard from uh, not only the Trump administration, but from governments all over Western Europe and uh, in some other countries about needing to have more of the supply chains uh, locally. And Joe Biden has been promoting the idea as part of his campaign. Well, um, that's that's correct. Yes. Uh, the thing is, just having the production local doesn't necessarily reduce your risk of disruption. OK, there are a number of different things that need to go into this. Um, one is, as I mentioned, uh, you want redundancy. So if you take something that's all made in one place in China and bring it to one place in the United States, you don't have redundancy. You still are vulnerable to disruption if you happen to have a forest fire in that location. Uh, so you need to think in terms of multiple locations, multiple places to have goods made and, and have goods stored and, and multiple ways to have goods shipped. Uh, just moving something doesn't do it. Uh, the other point uh, that's relevant here is that these supply chains can be really complicated. So if people are thinking about moving the pharmaceutical value chain for a, a particular drug, well, maybe they're thinking about um, the, the pill mill, right? But the pill mill is at the end of the production process. You've got the manufacturing of the various precursors that go into the pill, You've got the manufacturing of the delivery system. Perhaps it's, uh, it's, it's not a pill. It comes in some other form, and you need to uh, provide, whether it's the vials or the bags or whatever it is that is used to deliver this to patients. Uh, all of those things, the packaging, the labeling, all of those things have to be relocated in order to recreate a value chain. And so it's a lot of different steps, and if one of them is missing, you haven't really shifted uh, the, the uh, entire location of the value chain you're concerned about. It doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means it's a lot more complicated than people think. And it's not just a question of, of where these pills are uh, made and, and put into a bottle. You argue that although globalization has been a good thing for some people around the world because it's lifted uh, huge populations out of poverty. It's also fueled inequality and resentment among industrial workers in, in the wealthy nations of the West. And, and that's led to a resurgence of nationalism and, and the recent rise of authoritarian leaders around the world. Yes, I think so. I think we can see a direct connection here between uh, this sense of economic loss. A lot of people, and not just in the United States, uh, have seen their economic fortunes decline. Uh, and not just at a particular company. It's in whole towns, whole regions in some case, cases that used to specialize in a, a product, and now there's no demand for that product anymore. Their, their business is gone. And I think what we've seen around the world is that when 
uh, a community is, is hit like this, recovery can take a long time. Uh, we're, we glibly say that people should adjust. And yes, people should adjust. But adjusting to a change like this can take 20 or 30 or 40 years until a community finds a new economic base. Uh, in my previous book that you referred to, The Bach, I wrote about the effect of, of the shipping industry moving out of Brooklyn in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And people, by and large, don't remember how difficult life was in Brooklyn when the shipping industry moved out. It took Brooklyn another 25 or 30 years to become trendy, and people wanted to move back in again. Okay, And Brooklyn found a different economy, a different way of living, but it wasn't an adjustment that happened in, in two or three years. These kinds of adjustments are painful. Well, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was uh, led to thriving industries in general, Domino Sugar and all sorts of other major companies there. And now that's all gone. I think the Domino Sugar plant is is being uh, rebuilt into condos. So there was a lot of industry in Brooklyn that went away, uh, due in part to the fact that the shipping moved away. And yes, you know, Brooklyn was thriving, at least up until the pandemic. But there were a lot of years uh, when things were pretty lean before Brooklyn began to thrive. So I I think we just need to be wary of being uh, so glib about telling people they need to adjust and do something else. Yes, you need to learn to adjust and do something else, but you may need some help over that period. Does this also happen within the country? For example, Brooklyn was once home to, I think, four or five different major breweries. Uh, some of them, I don't think Peel's beer is with us anymore. I'm not sure about Rheingold, but uh, they moved to other parts of the country. Sure. And, and I think many historians have noted the irony here. We've had uh, a lot of uh, people in the South uh, complaining about the loss of the textile industry to imported goods. Without mentioning, for example, that the textile industry used to be mainly in New England, and it was recruited to the South. So what the South has gone through with uh, the decline in textile jobs is similar to what New England went through with the decline of textile jobs many decades ago. Um, so n- there's, there's nobody here who's, uh, who's really innocent. It's the nature of economic change. You also write that, I'm quoting, closing smelters and steel plants and buying exports from poor company, countries flattered rich country statistics, but it didn't bring down the, uh, the quantity of greenhouse gases entering the environment. In fact, the uh, emissions from uh, exports grew three times faster from the, uh, the global population uh, during the, uh, the years between 1990 and 2008 because uh, trade allowed the wealthy economies to push their emissions out of sight. That's correct. That's correct. And you can So we've exported that. we've exported uh, the uh, you know all the things that lead to global warming but we're still experiencing global warming. That's right. And and you can think about that if you'd like as as a form of subsidy uh, because the producers are not paying the cost of the emissions that that they create. Uh, this has been perhaps a greater issue in Europe, where there's been much more political sensitivity to climate change than there's been here. 
uh, I think there are more industries that have probably decided to shift production out of Europe because they were fearful of the cost of uh, emissions under under a system that required them to buy permits for greenhouse gas emissions. And, and some people in Europe felt very virtuous. Okay, Europe has brought down its greenhouse gas emissions. Well, greenhouse gases are a global problem, not a problem in your particular town. And if the result of your policy is that emitting industries have moved from Europe to Asia, that's no net benefit. The world is not better off in terms of producing greenhouse gas emissions. So are we saying that globalization uh, is a, a mixed blessing? Obviously, the, <laughs> the world changed when people started uh, trading with each other, and that goes back a long time. And then, of course, we had uh, the uh, Europeans coming here uh, and the globalization that resulted uh, from that, after all, you tomatoes uh, were not indigenous to Italy, for example, chocolate to France. Um, so what, is the, what are your current feelings about globalization? Do you think it, it remains a positive trend or, or remains a positive force? I think globalization is uh, in the midst of a shift. We've been through several phases of globalization, as, as uh, we discussed earlier. Uh, and this business of, of globalization based on long distance value chains that began in the late. Did I just lose you? Excuse me? You, you disappeared for a moment. Oh, I say that these, this globalization with international value chains has passed its prime. Okay, mm -hmm. we're seeing trade grow more slowly than the world economy. And it's possible that the growth of trade gets even slower or, or, or comes to a halt. At the same time, I think we're seeing that a lot more international exchange has to do with ideas and services. And that's growing gangbusters. And so I think we need to start thinking about the next phase of globalization that's really going to have more to do with shipping intangibles around the world, shipping ideas and not so much with shipping boxes full of goods. And that's going to have some consequences, too. Of it is, to this point, mainly industrial workers who've been hurt negatively by globalization. But uh, as trade in ideas and services becomes more important, we may start to see other workers uh, hurt more by this in a significant way. So, And, and here it's harder to tell... Um, where the where the jobs are being lost to, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that somebody closes a factory here and imports the product from there. It's that they have, to take one example, um, a research center here and a research center in some other place, and the work is shared. Does that have employment consequences for the United States? Of course it does. Can we say um, how many jobs that's affecting? No, we really can't. Um, or uh, a company that does some of its uh, paperwork abroad. And there's a lot of that starting to go on now. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of potential for, for services. This dawned on me a few years ago when I had a, a photo taken, and uh, the photographer uh, dropped me an email 
telling me she'd have the photo ready for me the next day, she'd send it off to Pakistan mm-hmm. and be touched up. Okay? So there's some guy in Pakistan who makes his living retouching photos for a photographer in the United States. Neither of these is a big company. It's simply a matter of a service basically being exported. It used to occur somewhere in the U.S., and now it's happening halfway around the world. Now, I have no time left, actually, but I did want to ask you about the growing adoption of artificial intelligence. Can you give me a, a one-minute <laughs> answer of uh, how that, uh, what impact that may have? Sure. I think artificial intelligence makes it possible to do a lot of different jobs abroad in ways that weren't possible before. Just to give you one example, you can think about language as a barrier in a lot of cases. Okay, If, if you're trying to do something in a certain language, uh, people who don't speak that language fluently can't compete with you. Well, with artificial intelligence, that's not necessarily a barrier anymore. I got to leave it there, unfortunately. Mark Levinson, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Uh, Love the book, Outside the Box, How Globalization Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas from Princeton University Press. Leonard, thank you very much. It's been great to be with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Or you can visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find all of our past shows. Uh, There are links there. And if you'd like to write to me with a comment about a show or just to say hello, you can email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position these days because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please give us a call now at two at 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to WBAI.org to uh, support this station, keeping community radio alive in New York because we depend totally on our listeners. And if you become a BAI buddy, a listener who contributes $10 or more each month to keep the station running, we are happy to offer you a copy of the book we've been discussing, Outside the Box, How Globalization Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas by my guest, Mark Levinson. Uh, Whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope are of interest to you. Uh, And we hope that you'll tune in tomorrow when director Eric Marola will discuss the Andorra Hustle, his fascinating documentary about the underreported war waged between the Kingdom of Spain and the Catalan independence movement. We'll see you then.